Welcome to Weapon of Choice, a podcast where creatives across mediums give us insight into the weaponry of their art. Each episode, you'll be hearing an interview with an artist who uses their art as a weapon of choice for social change and disruption, visibility and justice, cultural critique and resistance, among other things that ignite social consciousness and community action. These artists will tell us about their journeys toward the battles they are fighting, how they design, sharpen, and develop their artistic weaponry to strike a blow against injustice in the world. Welcome back to Weapon of Choice Podcast, Season 2, Episode 2. I'm Tommy Franklin. And I'm Andrew Benda. And it's good to be back in the booth, so to speak, with my main man, Andrew. Uh, yeah. It's been a while. We've been busy and we've been uh, working on the show and we've got a lot in store, but we're excited about this new episode for you. And um, yeah, man, glad to be back in the same room with you. We're starting to, our schedules are starting to line up again and that's really awesome. So we're, we're kind of having trouble keeping track of all the projects that we want to keep doing, uh, which is super exciting. But I feel like Tommy, whenever you and I get in a room, we're like, oh, we got to, we got to talk to this person. We got to go, oh man, I, I got an idea for a mini series. So uh, as as my schedule certainly has started to free up more, uh, we're excited to be running out more of that stuff. Yeah, we're we're excited to bring y'all a lot more content um, beyond just the interviews. The interviews you're still gonna love. We appreciate you tuning in, and all everyone listening around the world. We appreciate uh, you listening, and there's so much more to come. So we uh, we do urge you to. Keep tuning in and uh, keep telling your friends and keep sharing on Facebook if you follow us there or pay attention to what we're doing on Instagram if you follow us there. And uh, yeah, if you tune in through iTunes, what really makes a, a, a big help for us and to help us grow our audience is if you rate us, preferably five stars. I'm not going to mention you, most likely, if you don't give us five stars. But uh, also, when you give us that five stars, please leave us a review, which really helps us in uh, not that rankings matter, but just putting us on other podcast listeners' radar. If they're listening to something even remotely similar to a show like ours, um, it really goes a long way. So please rate and review us on iTunes, and um, you can find us just about anywhere you listen to our podcast. Yeah, so we actually, um, update for everybody, we just posted everything, every episode, and all future episodes are going to be hosted on SoundCloud. So you can check that out. They'll still be in your feed or whatever app you're using. Um, but if you want to listen to an episode and comment along and kind of give us a play-by-play of what you're feeling of a question or an answer, um, what something's making you think about, you can do that um, along with the recording on SoundCloud. Yeah, definitely. Uh you know, if you're thinking of an artist that, um, obviously we have a long list of people we want to interview, but if you're thinking of an artist that you think we should interview that really focuses on that intersection of art and activism, email us at weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. And also speaking of platforms, I'm noticing a lot of people are even starting to listen to podcasts on Spotify, which uh, we haven't uh, integrated uh, right. all of our episodes into Spotify yet. We plan to. Um, some of the you know nuts and bolts of all of this, it takes a little bit of money, and we actually have um, 10 people currently, maybe 11 now, uh, donating to our show to help keep us going behind the scenes, and we appreciate all the love from the people who are sending in donations every month. They're sustaining members of Weapon of Choice podcast, and if you want to join that team of people chipping in monthly... You can go to our Patreon, and that's www.patreon.com 
dot com forward slash weapon of choice podcast www.patreon.com forward slash weapon of choice podcast we really appreciate anything you can spare if you can give a dollar a month if you can give ten dollars a month it goes a long way we've uh, able to upgrade a little bit of equipment we were able to reintegrate um, our content into a more fluid platform by adding soundcloud with the dollars of the people who are chipping in and we really need more folks to do that and join that weapon of choice member community. So thanks for that love and uh, you know keep spreading the word there as well. We appreciate it. All right, Tommy, you said you, uh, so people are listening. Tommy told me before we started recording today that he had a question for me, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for it. <laughs> Maybe because I'm actually, <laughs> I'm actually now thinking of a different question. And uh, everybody, we are recording out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. We know we got listeners around the world. We love that fact. But there is another fact that's quite stark in our neighborhood, in our city, in Minneapolis, in the Twin Cities. And that is, it is April 9th. And there is a couple of inches of snow on the ground. Nothing new to a Minnesotan, but definitely tragic nonetheless every time this does occur. occur. And uh, yeah, so there's, it's... It's snow on the ground in April. Yeah. And winter has come and gone, yes. But you never really mm. come out of winter in Minnesota until you're all the way out of winter. That's right. And I'm curious, Andrew, what, what does it mean for your soul or your mind to transition out of winter? What does that do for you to... How do you go about transitioning out of winter emotionally or, or otherwise? So I've actually, I've lived in the Midwest my whole life um, and actually grew up uh, north of Minneapolis. So I'm pretty used to the cold winters and the long winters. Um, and I, I think something that I'll never, that is ingrained in my bones is like every time you make it out of a winter, it's like, holy shit, I can't believe that happened. Like, I can't believe I made it out. Like, there, for a while there, I was like, I didn't know if I was going to see the sun again, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so it's this cool thing starts to happen where people start to see the sun and it like starts getting warmer and everybody's like, oh my God, we made it. Um, I think it's really how I keep myself motivated during and I try to, while, while I always am trying to like play music and be creative, I gotta be, I gotta double down on that on the winter months and commit myself to those creative things that like give back to me. But how do I like, you know, take care of myself? And in that transition, man, even if it gets above 45, I'm like out in a sweater just mm -hmm. trying to like soak up the warmth and like, oh man. There's uh, yeah, I feel like it feels like a pretty natural transition because my mindset is like so, so ready for it. Yeah. OK. Yeah. For those who uh, um, I just want to send a lot of love um, and virtual hugs out to those who find that transition from winter to spring very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to spread love to those who uh, have a hard time with uh that that crossover and um yeah we're here for you if you like the show and like what you're hearing from our guests for that reason i mean at the end of the day we just want our guests to speak to you from their perspectives and experiences and hope that that does something for you or your day or your hour that you're listening to the show or in any 15 minute increments that you're listening to the show and um 
that's why I'm like super excited. I'm super excited uh, for the conversation that we're going to play for you in this episode with Alexis Pauline Gums. Without further ado, Alexis Pauline Gums describes herself as a queer black troublemaker aspiring to be your favorite cousin. She's the author of M Archive, After the End of the World, Spill, Scenes of Black Feminist Fugitivity, and she is the co-editor of Revolutionary Mothering, Love on the Front Lines, and the founder and director of Eternal Summer of the Black Feminist Mind, an educational program based in Durham, North Carolina. Her writing appears in many publications, from the anthology Octavia's Brood, Science Fiction from Social Justice Movements, to the Routledge Companion to Anglophone Caribbean Literature. Alexis is currently the visiting Winton Chair in Women and Gender Studies at University of Minnesota, and we are thrilled to have her as our next guest on Weapon of Choice podcast. Here it is. My name is Alexis Pauline Gums, and I am everybody's cousin. That's how I've been thinking about about relationship and interrelatedness. So I'm your cousin, whoever you are listening to this. And I also identify as a queer black troublemaker and a black feminist love evangelist and prayer poet priestess. And I live in Durham, North Carolina, and I love everywhere around the world. Thanks for joining us. This might be the first time I make it uh, plural. What are your weapons of choice? And what battles are you fighting? My weapons of choice. You know, the first thing that I thought about, even like with the, na- with the name of this podcast, is I've been thinking about, you know, I, w- I was blessed to be part of the co-editor team along with my sister comrades, Maya Williams and China Martins of Re- Revolutionary Mothering, Love on the Front Lines. And so it has that similar imagery, right, of, we're on the front lines and, and what, does, what does that mean? I would say mothering and I've been thinking more and more about daughtering as um, just incredible strategies that transform every situation that we're in, right? And then I've also been challenged, so that, that's the title of our book, and there is this incredible mentor, Margot Okazawa-Ray, who is a black feminist Shiro, she's one of the founders of the Kumbahi River Collective, and she um, has done a lot of work around transnational feminism and militarism. And she was like, what is it with this language, this militaristic language? And I was like, oh, we didn't even, I didn't even think about that, you know, like the front lines. And she was like, why does it always have to be this militaristic language? And I was like, that's so interesting. What does it mean? So I'm just thinking about it in this moment, too. Yeah. Like, what does it mean to honor the fact that we said revolutionary mothering love on the front lines really coming from a perspective like we do feel under siege. We do feel that mothers of color and marginalized mothers are attacked and that children who quote unquote are a problem, you know, for the status quo and are creating new worlds are, are actually being punished and attacked systemically. And at the same time, we don't want to reproduce those lines of attack, right? So, so, we're, so we're thinking about what our strategies are. And it's led me to less think about weapons and more think about, you know, what what is the what is the intervention? You know, what is the probably my dad would say paradigm shift, but what's what's the 
transformative space that allows us to acknowledge what we're actually experiencing and the fact that there are wars on drugs and wars on us and wars on our community that are actual wars and they're called wars and some, some of them are not called wars and they still are. As the Zapatistas say, they are just a, a state of war that we're dealing with. And at the same time, we don't want to reproduce war. So think about all of that. But I would say mothering and daughtering are what I am doing, you know, in, in its multiple forms. And I think about that as acts of love that come from a dark feminine place that um, are very expansive and that are challenging, but they're actually made up of a lot of really small, really necessary acts of love that make life possible. So what do those roles, the, the, the mothering and the daughtering roles, look like as you pursue um, your art, your many different projects that you're, you're keeping up, that you're fostering, that you're cultivating? Mm -hmm. It looks like accountability and, um, and daily practice that honors how embedded everything I do is in an intergenerational reality. So in, in the book, M Archive After the End of the World, one of the, one of the ways of talking about that is black feminist, pragmatic intergenerational sphere, right? I feel like I live in a black, black feminist trans, um, intergenerational pragmatic sphere. And that means that every morning when I wake up and I write, I'm writing prompted by words that other black feminists have used. You know, that's, that's an ongoing practice of understanding that I might think, I usually don't think this, but I might think, oh, I'm an individual genius. I'm going to sit at my desk and I'm just going to have inspiration flow into me. And even if I did that, I know it would be building on what has come before me. And I know that it would be accountable to who was coming afterwards. So what that means is that for me, the writing, um, all of the, the collaborating that I'm doing here with, with black feminist theater artists in the Twin Cities for this residency, the um, collaborating with community organizations and the educational work, all of it is profoundly dedicated. And so I find ways to specifically presence that dedication with there's definitely gonna be invocation of black feminists who came before. And there's often specific dedication, whether it's like we were talking earlier about my younger brothers and, and my sister, um, or my nieces or my nephews, you know, there, there's gonna be a specific dedication. Like I'm writing this for, for a purpose and a dedicated audience, right? And um, I think that's what makes it a mothering and daughtering practice. Mm. It actually calls me into myself as a person with a role in community. And I think that's important because individualism is not working and it's, it's um, unaffordable <laughs> as far as I think for our species. It's definitely unaffordable for me. Um, there's nothing I can do as an individual person, but there's such greatness in understanding that we're connected to each other. And so I feel like whatever's supposed to come through me as an artist and also as um, an educator and a collaborator, it comes through when I acknowledge that and put that right, literally right in front of my face. Great practice, sounds like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that intergenerational acknowledgement as looking at it as so powerful because it is, the status quo is just so much like um, the, the acknowledgement of the individual or like existing outside or, or, or not acknowledging where, uh, where power comes from. 
Can you just speak a little bit more about why it's such a revolutionary act to um, be in constant practice of acknowledgement? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, especially coming out of, out of traditions that have been, to use the language, embattled, but also that have been um, extracted from and not acknowledged and not cited, I think it's really important to acknowledge over and over and over and over again, um, because that silencing has been, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a genocide attempt to silence entire communities. So I think that that, that acknowledgement is important, but also there's, there's something about, I like how you said where, where power comes from, because I think it is revolutionary to understand that our power is always interconnected and it's profoundly, inherently interdependent. Mm -hmm. And there's a way that in any moment, if I, if I try to you know, protect and elevate my ego and I try to say like I'm powerful as an individual, what I'm doing is I'm actually buying into a serious lie about what power is. And, and this is the lie that I think is the basis of the intersecting oppressions that we deal with. It says like, oh, you are a separate individual. You can somehow succeed individualistically and therefore the things that we do and the costs that they have to the environment, the costs that they have to whole communities, the labor that they steal, the sacrifices that they require, which are, which are people's whole lives and generations of people's lives are justified because an individual rises out of that, right? And um, that's not true, but that is actually foundational to the educational system that we deal with today, right? There's this idea of like, you can individually make a difference or you know, people exist on the scale of an individual and that's not really the scale that life takes place at. And that's why I think talking about mothering and more recently I've been really thinking about daughtering, and that's kind of what we're trying to theorize right now, actually, in what, what we're up to with Brilliance Remastered, is to say that is, you, to even just understand mothering as a primary context and to make that visible, you see that there's no scale of an individual. You see that we get here and we can't do anything. You know, like if, if people could just survive as individuals, we would need no kinship structure. <laughs> there, would, there would be um, all of the acts of care that people are doing that they're not getting personal benefit from, but actually have their value because of how they're interconnected with somebody else. All of the things that we don't always acknowledge that just constitute our lives and make it possible for us to not just freeze and die and you know, not, not um, and starve. Um, that is present in every moment, but we have to tangibly make that visible because we're living inside of a lie about that. And, and to me, that's like the place that the lie happens, you know, is this, is this forgetting of what do our lives depend on? There's um, a great friend of mine, brilliant woman of color, biologist, Kriti Sharma, and she has this book called Interdependence. And it's so deep and I'm reading it over and over again, really slowly because I'm like, not a biologist, but, um, but I recommend it to everyone because she writes it in this way that is accessible to those of us who may not have studied biology. And the question is, what does life depend on? And it's so incredible because she breaks down like to the level, literal level of a cell and how can a cell sense proteins that are around it? And then all the way to the scale of, you know, our, our whole communities, what does it what does a, a true interdependence mean that's not about individuals interacting, but is about the fact that 
none of us exist without the presence of each other, the, the sensing of each other, the um, actual nourishing of each other. And um, we constitute each other in that way. So, yeah. So that, that's, a, that's a, long, a long way of saying it. But I think that what I can do is just to constantly, constantly, constantly be reaffirming that reality and making it as visible as possible because we see the costs of how it's been mm -hmm. absented and how it's been, um, how it's been lied about. Yeah, yeah. So in the Kambahi River Collective Statement, it says, if for black women to be free, everyone else would necessarily have to be free because our freedom requires the destruction of all systems of oppression, right? And I think about that, and I think about like the same question, like why aren't people citing black feminist theorists about all of these things that they've been talking about? And it's like, oh, because we would all have to be, have to be free. You know, it's so explicitly interconnected. It's so unapologetically says that there is no, there's no hierarchy of, of oppressions is what Audre Lorde says. Um, no one is free while others are oppressed is what Martin Luther King Jr. said. Um, nobody's free until everybody's free is what Fannie Lou Hamer said. It's all this, this same thing, but when you look at it and when you acknowledge it as opposed to being like, look, I have a new idea, yeah. um, then we're embedded with that. You know, we're, in, we're embedded with that. And um, I think that I can understand because I'm afraid to not be an individual in a society where all my training has been around how to be an individual or really to pretend to be an individual. And at the same time, our, that, that's what's at stake is our freedom. And so I think about for black women to be free, everyone else would have to be free. Sometimes I feel like that freedom is terrifying, even to, even to black women. You know, that act, the actual totality of what it would mean of getting there and being there, you know, and being there, understanding that we don't, we don't know how to be there. Um, we have, you know, all the technologies we know, all the coping skills that we have, we have um, learned, even a lot of our practices that we do and reaffirm with each other are all built around an idea that we will completely outgrow, right? The revolution would be to completely not need that anymore. And then Audre Lorde says at the end of her poem, Black Studies, what will they, what will they carve for weapons? What will they grow for food, right? So I'm thinking about y'all's Weapon of Choice podcast. And she's, she's thinking about her students who, who say, speak to us now, mother, for soon we will not need you. Only your memory teaching us questions. And she's realizing she can't even imagine what is it going to be if the project of Black Studies, as she's thinking about it, or if the teaching that she's doing as an educator is successful, her students are going to face a world that she can't imagine if she's successful, right? If not, they're going to just face the same world that she's facing, and, and then what's the point? But um, yeah, so I, th I think about that all the time. And what do we do with our fear around that? You know, what do we do with our attachment even to our weapons is, is you know our as black people and, and, and black artists and the physical artifact of a weapon isn't in abundance and perhaps that's why i mean weapon of choice gordon parks mm -hmm. these weapons that we manifest are usually not something that we can stockpile like other mm -hmm. like some of the oppressors and Absolutely. other powers have so, but so we stockpile it in art mm -hmm. 
And then when we carve those weapons, they come out in, from the individual, from our life's experiences. Yeah. So do you think it's important? And maybe you want to get away from that language again, <laughs> even though we encourage you. <laughs> but um, what does that mean to you that we will always be, as a people, artists, mm -hmm. because these weapons, the way we overcome fears or cope with, you know, struggles, come out of like most of the times weapons that you can't like physically hold on to yeah. unless it's a book or a painting but right in our minds you know what do you what do you think is the importance of that creativity that we just have to keep yeah journeying upon yeah well I mean that's part of what I love about what what y'all are doing and and really the premise of this podcast is that right we're we're creating in the face of destruction it's constantly committing and recommitting to that creativity, you know? And so talking about mothering is a way of talking about that, right? It's, it's a way of talking about, um, thinking about the way that we've been thinking about mothering. It goes beyond gender and it, it really is that like, I'm involved in the creative process. That's what that means, right? And so in a particular moment, I'm thinking of it from the perspective of what can be created, right? What can be made possible? And I think that that is revolutionary because it, it's not to say that we're not aware of the destructive forces or of the stockpiled weapons that you know, oppressors have or of the gun policies that always you know, will, put, um, will put those weapons in the hands of those who use them to, to harm the communities that we're accountable to. It's, it's saying that not only are we committed to creating another world, but we actually are honoring the fact that we have created it already and we have been creating it, you know, like that we, that, that creativity, you said the art is stockpiled, you know, like it's cumulative. You know what I'm saying? Like I will never run out of, I don't know, I've already cited like, like multiple black women writers just, you know, in the past couple minutes, but I will literally never run out of things that have been created by those who've come before us that make it possible for me to live in a different way than I'd be able to live otherwise. And then we're generating it all the time. You know, our peers and the people who are alive now, are like, it's so abundant. It's so profoundly abundant. And that's what we're tapping into. So yeah, I agree. I think, I think that it is really important. And I think that, you know, the legacy that says that we do have access through our perspective to something that, that makes other worlds possible it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I'm honored to be a, a part of it with you all. Yeah, I mean, if we, if we get there, we'll be the experts <laughs> on not murdering each other. You know what I'm saying? Because <laughs> um, we've had to channel it, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to school. You got to college. Mm -hmm. um, you end up at Duke. But can you talk about how, can you talk about Brilliance Remastered and how your time there as a student and entering education kind of informed and inspired to, again, go create. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, so I did my undergraduate work at Barnard College at Columbia University. And I, um, I mean, I've been into school for a minute. My mom found this newsletter from my elementary school and it was, she sent it to me and it was just like me next to this big pile of books, like pile of books bigger than me. And I was like, still doing that, you know, like that's, 
you know, she sent me the picture and I was like at that moment sitting next to this big pile of books and I was like, huh, okay, still right there um, in the library at school. So that that's something that has been, um, I've just been very attracted to. And I think that's part of the intergenerational attraction too, is to, to these ar- these archives and these artifacts that are like, okay, I didn't experience this, but somebody did, you know, how can I learn about it? And I actually started doing primary research when I was in high school. And I think part of being somebody who somewhat skeptical of the educational system that I was inside of, I was like, well, I want to look at, I remember my first project was actually about, was actually with the newspaper, the Black Panther. Um, Cause I was like, I want to, I want to look at it myself. You know, like these history books, I, you know, my parents raised me with enough critical <laughs> thinking and I was like, I feel like they're not talking about this in a way that's going to actually have me be free or any mm. of us be free. So, um, so I remember the Auburn Avenue library, um, has all of the Black Panther newspaper. And I was like, I want to know about like how women were involved in this organization. I want to know about what they wrote. I, w- I want to know what that, what that was. And that has also never ended. So understanding that primary research and archival research was an option and how connected it made me feel to earlier generations of people is something that has been also consistent in my life. And so I didn't know, you know, growing up, I didn't know what a PhD was. I didn't really know what it, what that even stood for um, or what it meant. And even when I went to college, I, I didn't understand that until somebody talked to me about that. And they were like, this is something that you should think about. And I was like, what is it? You know, I thought I was like, it seems like it's expensive enough to go to school right now. Like I can't just perpetually go to school for, you know, ever. I thought it was just a different thing that like nobody like me um, did. And they were like, no, you can actually get paid to just like read and research all the time. And I was like, wait, hold on. What? You know, like what? I never knew that. You know, like I just thought I would have to like hustle and just do this in my free time, you know, just be like a, a archive archive digging person and was and it a passerby mention or was it somebody important it was someone who's important to me her name is jenny kasanoff and in fact i was in trouble because i was um i was in her class in american literature class and i was like <laughs> always showing up for her class like in my pajamas and i always I always had done the reading, of course, because I was super interested in the reading and I was super interested in the in the discussion in class. But like I would turn in these papers and it was like, I don't know, I didn't put page numbers. I didn't, you know, just the, the, the like appearance of what it is to be a good student. I wasn't invested in that at all, even though the content of it, I was super interested in and invested in. And so she had me in her office and she was like, listen, you know, this paper is really great, but I kind of feel like you just are, you just handed me a diamond in a paper bag out the trash, you know, like, like you just are like here, you know, and she was like, this is, these ideas are really important. And she was like, you know, this could be, this could be a writing sample for a PhD program. And I was like, what are those things? What's a writing sample? What, you know, like, what does that even have to do? Like what? And she was the person who talked to me about it. And she was like, you know, there, there's like value to how you are. Like the fact that you're somebody who thinks about these things and digs for them and thinks about them again and wants to think about them from multiple perspectives and really devotes time to that, that's actually a form of life that exists. And I was like, oh, 
Like I didn't know that she had a PhD. I didn't know that my college professors had something called a PhD. I, that was the moment where I made the connection. And she really made that connection for me, kind of calling me out, like, what are you doing? Like, didn't you move all the way here to go to school? Like, why are you acting like this doesn't matter when it's obvious that it does matter to you? You know, like, what is that about? So that was a, that was a pivotal moment for me. And that was when I started to understand that there were different strategies around how I could support that role that I do feel like is a role that I have in my community of doing some of that intergenerational work of, of making the archive accessible. Cause not everybody's going to go sit in archives for hours and hours and hours and they can be restrictive spaces and you got to leave all your stuff in the locker and you got to, sometimes you got to wear white gloves and you know, whatever, but I'm down, like I'm down just for out infinite hours on end to be in that space. And I know that that means then for the folks who aren't going to do that, I have to be able to make a pathway so that, so that the energy of all of that, those actual artifacts that are in those spaces and some of the archive, archival artifacts that are excluded from that, those spaces and are just like in the basements of, mm -hmm. you know, different incredible um, organizers and artists around the world, that there's a way for, the, for those to be part of the space that we're living in, you know, in, the, in this moment and, and that becomes part of our future. So all that is to say, I ended up getting a PhD and I never, I never thought of it like, oh, I'm going to get a PhD and then I'm going to be, you know, even though it'd be cool to be just like my professors, I never really saw that as um, who I was. Um, not that I had a strong rejection of it, but I was just like, I've now realized that there are these fellowships that I can use, that I can ha literally have access to all my time to play what I do feel like is a fundamental role that I have in my community. And that is really exciting. And so um, that was great. And then I realized that there were these, you know, this is a particular moment in, let's say, academia or the, the, the educational structure where people have really fought for space, um, you know, there's such a thing, ethnic studies and black studies, like I was talking about with Audre Lorde before, have been things that people fought for because they understood that communities had a right to have access to their history and, and all analytical skills around um, their liberation and their destinies and, and the past that they wanted to have. And so now I feel like there's this moment where there's a critical mass of people from oppressed communities who have access to things like PhDs, like, like a, a certain type of degree that I have, and a possible trajectory in ways that weren't possible for like Anna Julia Cooper, who also had a PhD, or W.E.B. Du Bois, who also had a PhD, trajectories that weren't possible for them because of how excluded they were from those institutions at that time. And all of a sudden, it's this like neoliberal flip. So it's almost like the only thing you can do as a researcher, or the only way that you can participate in um, this idea of the life of the mind is if you reproduce the institution of the university specifically. Whereas oppressed people have been using the, pra the practice of research to transform community, to build counter institutions, to do all sorts of things. You know, Ida B. Wells was like, I'm gonna create youth programs for many generations. So for me, Brilliance Remastered is about remembering that and tapping into that legacy because what I saw, and I got really angry, was that um, after I graduated, we, uh, my partner and I do a project called the Mobile Homecoming Project, which is an experiential archive amplifying generations of queer black brilliance. 
and we visited, um, we visited a school and we did a lab intensive with their graduate students. And of course, who was attracted to that was a lot, a lot of different graduate students who are from oppressed communities who are doing this incredible work because they're inspired by their communities and you know, they want freedom for their communities. But in the structure of their academic process, they felt so disrespected. They were questioning whether they were even smart. You know, they were just like suffering, you know, and even though they were having this great privilege of having educational access, they felt they were in this experience of suffering and they were talking to us about how this was the first time they'd felt safe in their graduate careers was this workshop that we were doing. And I was like, wait a minute. You know, like I just felt so angry about that. I was like, wait a minute, you know, all of this work that's been going on for generations is not to have y'all feel like you don't have anything to contribute. It's the opposite of that. So that's what Brilliance Remastered was about. I was so angry and my partner was like, well, you know, you gotta do something with that anger. And I was like, okay. So that's, that's where Brilliance Remastered came from. And I feel grateful that I was able to have the perspective that I do have about what my intellectual work is for. And it does come from earlier generations of people who have created and benefited from from what's called ethnic studies, um, which encompasses a, a broad variety of things. But when I was an undergraduate at Barnard, there was a conference called Ethnic Studies and the Activist Impulse. And scholars from around the country came and they talked about how alienated and isolated they felt. They talked about the fact that they went into, you know, these are, these are foundational scholars who created these incredible books about like everything about communities of color. And they talked about how isolated they felt from their communities and that they decided to do this work for love of their communities, but they felt so distanced and isolated and also the timeline around academia and also the institutionalization that they experienced in academia had them feel like the activist impulse, right? The living in the moment with community and in a revolutionary possibility with community that was their whole motivation, they felt so distant from that. And so to see that as somebody who was much earlier on a journey of even understanding what intellectual life was, was important for me to be able to be like, oh, they, they learned that lesson. So I don't have to learn that lesson all over again. And Brilliance Remastered is about a whole generation also not having mm -hmm. to learn that lesson all over again. And also creating space for us to, to do like, well, what would we create? Like, what would we create if this... Um, you know, it's intellectual work, it's also spiritual work, it's ancestrally accountable, it's community accountable. What would it look like to have inquiry? What would it look like to have class? You know, we're getting ready to have an intensive that starts tonight, in fact, an online intensive. What would it look like if all of those things were connected? How would it be structured? What's the ceremony for that? And so this week, um, we're doing this intensive called Motherlands. It's like M slash Otherlands. Audre Lorde and Daughtering and Diaspora. And it's for people who, who see themselves as community accountable artists or intellectuals or um, organizers who are thinking about how do, we, how do we learn from how Audre Lorde was thinking and living around solidarity with other Black people? And how do we think about those, those issues of longing of like, well, I would rather identify with where my people are from and not with the United States, because obviously the United States is destroying everything. But at the same time, in relationship to that set of people, 
I have responsibility because of what access I do have in the United States or the fact that I'm situated here. How do I hold all those things together? Or what does it mean to be in solidarity without dehumanizing people, but then be fully, though, present to all of the stuff that's in there, longing, betrayal. I mean, you mentioned Black Panther, right? <laughs> there's, there's all of this stuff around like really profoundly wanting connection, but the, the different angles of the disconnection are, um, are systemic, right? And so Audre Lorde thought about this and her thinking about this is incredibly generative. And so this intensive is like, what does it, what does it mean for us to come together around that in a way that's Lordian, right? Because Audre Lorde is, was thinking at the level of a political economy, at, the, at a level of transnational solidarity, and at the level of interpersonal, her issues with her own mother, like all of that stuff. She understood that that was all connected and, and was directing her and was useful for our communities. So what does that look like for the um, nine of us who are gonna come together for nine hours <laughs> over the next three days to um, work prompted by Audre Lorde's writing to investigate what that looks like for us in this moment. So that, that's part of the, um, the mother ourselves, again, M slash other ourselves, um, series of intensives that, that Brilliance Remastered is, is mm. having right now. And I just love it because one, it's just beautiful to gather in an intimate way with a specific group of people for an extended period of time. But it's also, um, it's also the deepest questions that I have, you know? And I think that that's part of the, the joy and vulnerability of being an educator who understands that it's, it's so profoundly about a longing to understand and be connected. And it's not about knowing something and then like reproducing that knowledge, right? It's, it's not a, a colonial form of being like, here are things I know. Now let me tell them to you. And then you go tell someone else. Like, yes, I do want people to know things about Audre Lorde and go tell them to other people for sure. But really, I just keep coming back to this work by Audre Lorde because I am so confused and conflicted, but passionate and have longing about how do I relate? How do I relate to black women from Anguilla, which is an ancestral home of mine, and Jamaica, which is another ancestral home of mine. And how do you, how do you navigate longing itself? Longing can be a great feeling and be a mm -hmm. powerful thing, and longing can also be isolating, sad. Mm -hmm. And so for you, for you, what is longing? And longing is long, right? Like it, it just is, is ongoing. For, for me, it becomes part of that daily practice. Like usually when I have, I have questions around something, something so big, like how do I relate to these sites of home? It's not, it's not um, something that I can be like, oh, figured it out. I thought about it for like an hour. Now I know. You know, it's, it's, it occurs differently in different moments. So for me, that's, that's what an extended daily writing practice provides me is ways to be with that longing as it shows up all year, mm. you know, and then I'm in a different place around it, but it's not like the longing is gone. And then what does it mean to be present to it in different forms, right? And say like, okay, so now these nine people, we're thinking about it and I'm learning from their longings, which may be for totally different places, which may even be motivated by different experiences, but that gives me a reflective space to be able to continue to be present for that. But I think longing is something that is not, um, it's not necessarily a problem, though it can be painful. 
it's not something that I think is going to be cured. I think that it's, it's something about, there's something very generative, like you said about it, like that longing is important. When I try to avoid those longings and try to ignore the depth of like, I have a desire for other people. I have a desire to be connected to people who have a profoundly different experience from me. I have a desire to be connected to people who aren't even alive anymore. You know, I have, I have that longing and that desire and it is generating all of the technologies and ceremonies and ways that we use to reach more towards each other. You know, like that, that's, um, that's why I'm grateful for the longing. But at the same time, there are times I wish it's like, couldn't I just like totally feel at home somewhere? Wouldn't mm. that be great? You know, like that that's that's a desire. Hasn't happened yet? I mean, I feel at home in moments. I feel at home like that feeling of being with people and feeling um just profound gratitude for the moment of being with other folks and seeing the greatness and, and just seeing how what's being expressed in this particular group of embodied people is so beyond these actual bodies that we have. I feel that. And that, that is a homeful feeling for sure. It's something that um, it would be convenient if that was like just stable and I just felt that way, you know, consistently at all times. And that, no, that has not been my experience. And you know, even as somebody, we were talking before the recording turned on, even as somebody who has moved a lot and lived in different cities and then somebody from um, an immigrant family and, you know, all of that complicates the feeling of at-homeness. I experience it more as a longing, but then at the same time, I absolutely do experience it in, in, um, in community, just not consistently in one space. Except, I would say, Durham, North Carolina, is a profound space of home for me and and for us my partner and i but that still is created in in those moments of gathering and togetherness it's just yep. a consistent a little more commitment to that um and i i actually growing up never knew if i would feel that like i feel committed to durham north carolina as a home mm. space i never thought i would feel necessarily like that about a specific geographic space because we did move so much and and because let alone Durham or like hmm. never feeling that about any space but let alone Durham in particular I didn't think I would just I just you didn't, just worried yeah I, I just I just thought you know how some people are like they're not monogamous for example mm. like I, I thought that I was that way geographically like mm. oh I'll just live different places different times and it'll be what it is and I'll never have a place particularly in the United States that I'm gonna feel like this place <laughs> is important to me it matters that I come back to this space. It matters that I consistently build in this space. I never knew if that would really be something that I experienced until I did move to Durham and I did experience it. And I was like, oh, this is what it feels like to have a lifelong commitment to a place. <laughs> so I'm grateful for that. I'll have to ask you offline what that's like. <laughs> you found something. Yeah. Like, I'm still like, it ain't happening. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it happened to everyone. I didn't yeah. think it was going to happen for me, but it, in fact, it did. Yeah. <laughs> Through so many of your projects, you're constantly pursuing the cultivation of community. Um, it's not just art that's out there. It's, it's you, you are um, incorporating other, you know, you've got worksheets. You're asking the audience question. You're trying to foster a space, not just 
um, publish something. I'd just love to hear in your own words why this practice is important to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's similar to what we've been talking about in terms of just acknowledging the interdependence, right? Mm-hmm. And I, um, I don't... I do value the things, the experiences I've had in my life and the things that I've been able to learn. But in a moment of being with people, and I do see, you know, creating any type of creation of art as a possible moment of being with people, there's something that's specifically possible that's not possible with me just sitting here by myself, you know? And I and I I know even when I am quote unquote sitting here by myself, I'm not because there's all the ancestors and there's all the possible people and there's all the people who um who exist and whoever have existed and whoever will exist and not just the people, all the species anyway. So I don't, so that, 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 um, aloneness is already, uh, is already false, but I'm just so excited about what might happen in a particular moment. I'm so interested in what other people are thinking. I'm not willing to just, um, just be like, all right, I wrote something here it is. Bye. You know, like, yeah. that, that is, and, and no shade, except some people, that's a form that works really well for them. And some yeah. people, they just offer what they've made, and I'm so happy and grateful for it and really excited to engage it. But for me, I just get so much inspiration, and I actually feel like, for me, the point of being alive and, and of being here is the possibility of being transformed mm. in community. That's it like that's why I'm here that's that's why I show up anywhere that I show up and so then the question becomes if it's a space where I kind of have been given a particular responsibility um how do I how do I invoke a ceremony in that space that makes that obvious and possible right where where people are turning to each other people are sharing their dedication they're sharing about who's not in the space but who they brought with them because they're here in the space, um, you know, talking to each other, but understanding that they're prompting what happens. Also, I know that, of course, it comes out of years of popular education, experiencing amazing popular education um, facilitation in community and in community organizing spaces. But it also comes out of that that longing, right? Like the possibility of that of that feeling at home. Because what happens at home? At home, we're all making each other into who we are. You know, like that that's one idea of home that resonates for me. So, yeah, I always want there to be a way for people to interact. And I want people to be able to understand. And this is part of, you know, not believing in capitalism and not believing in individualism. Is I want people to understand that if I'm involved in a creative process, it's not something that I own, mm. even though we live in a structure that says, like, my name is on this book, you know? Yeah. Um, so then it's Alexis's book. But to understand that it belongs, it belongs. Like y- you have access to it. It means it's like for us to experience. And and even in the process of writing, like M Archive is imagined and is, I feel, an archive of just these different artifacts that someone is looking at that are, that are evidence of the apocalypse that we're going through now, right? And so there, there's not like one perspective or even like who is who is sorting these artifacts is the person reading it, who happens to be reading it now or the group of people who happen to be reading it together. But even as I worked with this, I started to see that these 
artifacts were actually out of different people's lives. You know, like I would be listening to someone and be like, oh, I think this one, I think this one is from you. You know, like I think this is like actually in your life. You know, like I think that it's exciting because it's like a redistribution um, of what is already, what is already all of ours. And so, yeah, I'm committed to that. And I think it comes from how grateful I am to be, to be. And, and that, that scale of being is so profoundly collective. I want to honor it all the time. And there's always a way to honor it. I believe that there's always a way to honor it, even if I don't know what it is, and even if I don't do it, <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's always possible. So I like the way that you said that, the cultivation of community, because it's not, it's not so much like, okay, this is a, um, this is a base building strategy, you know, for a particular campaign, you know, like my, my, my um, skill set is not around that, though often I do work in collaboration and do things that in fact are for that purpose. Mm. But for me, it really is the fact that we already are, like we're already transforming it. You know, if somebody stood up and read their entire book out loud and I just sat there silently, all of us sitting in here silently, there's something there's something happening that would not be happening if we weren't all here. So why not make that as obvious as possible? Why not celebrate that? That's the way I think about it. So you got a new book coming out, M Archive, which is the second book in uh, its following Spill, which everyone should also pick up ASAP. So you wanna <laughs> tell us about uh, this new book? Yeah. Yeah, it's so it's so amazing to get to to get to be in a process. So so for me, Spill and M Archive and then the third one is called Dub Finding Ceremony. I made a decision that I wanted to write specifically with prompts from these these three women whose whose work has impacted me so much. And so so Spill, I wrote every day with work from Hortense Spillers, black feminist theorist Hortense Spillers. And for M, I wrote every day with the work of M. Jackie Alexander, who is an incredible black feminist theorist from Tobago and also, um, also a mentor and teacher of mine who I love so much. And they took me to totally different places. So Spill, I felt like I was taken like through the archive of black women's writing into these moments of fugitivity or freedom seeking of, of black women, but mostly in the past, like mostly, mostly in the past, mostly in the US and within a particular time period that pretty much ends with this moment that we're in now. When I started the writing process and when I do these writing processes, I don't know that, you know, like when I, when I wrote M archive, I wasn't like, I'm gonna write an apocalyptic set of artifacts. Like I, I didn't, I didn't know what it was. I just knew I was gonna write, and I was gonna be prompted by, especially the questions that M. Jackie Alexander asks in her book *Pedagogies of Crossing*, which I also really recommend to everyone because it's so, it's so amazing, and it, um, it talks about how in every moment it, it re-theorizes the middle passage but it talks about how in every moment we really are engaged in a crossing. Like what is there between us, 
right? What do we think there is between us? We're, we're crossing, right? The crossing is not over. And so she has, she has these different essays in that book that talk about, that talk about um, a, a university protest movement at the new school that she was involved in. There's essays that talk about um, laws about sexual violence in Caribbean countries. There's essays that talk about spiritual work that women of color do. How do we think about that through labor theory? I mean, it's just a brilliant, brilliant book. And I just recommend it to everyone. And it's a sacred text to me. And so I just reread that book and I looked at, oh, these are the, these are questions, you know, that she just has as questions, you know, and these are images that I just am, I'm like, ooh, you know, like I feel that, I feel attracted to and I'm, I don't know why and I don't have to necessarily explain them and just listed them all out. And then every day I would just write from one. And first of all, I was like, whoa, you know, I was taken to like spaces that seemed like other planets, times that felt like far into the future, outside of the perspective of the species. And I was like, okay, wow. <laughs> you know, I didn't necessarily know that was going to happen. Yeah. But then the other amazing thing that happened in the process of writing, that writing practice every day, was that something would happen, something from those scenes that seemed so, super futuristic to me would actually be in the day that I lived, like literally within the 24 hours. So I would write in the morning and like by the next morning, I would see it, you know, like I, I wrote about, about this woman on this planet of sulfur and her heart was turning to coal and it was gonna turn to diamond and this, you know, her beautiful blackening heart. And I was like, whoa, what an intense image. And it seems almost like out of a dream or something. Literally before the end of the day, I saw this, um, this work of art that was literally, it was all of these different um, ceramic sculptures and one was just this black heart. And I was like, what, you know? <laughs> but that happened every day for hundreds of days while I was writing this. And not every scene that I wrote every day is even in this book, but the ones that, um, you know, you have to do that discerning process of like, this was just part of my process, and then this is part of our process, you know, for, for um, as, as an artist, it's like, oh yeah, there's a process of curation there. But yeah, this is, this is evidence of that process in a particular way. Yeah. But what I'm so excited about is like now, now that it's officially in the warehouse, and if you order it, you'll officially get it, or, you know, it's going to be in stores and stuff soon, and I'm going to be doing events to share about it, is that it, it is able to be as collective as it is. You know, like, I'm always excited about that part because it's like every day I sat with this, right? And every day, every day, every day. And then I went through a whole process of reading everything again and being like, what, what did happen? Oh, well, maybe these are artifacts from, <laughs> from a, 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 a future viewing our apocalypse. And then, um, you know, just working through the publication process and, and other people, because um, I've been doing these books with Duke University Press, it's a peer-reviewed press. So part of the process is they send it to people who they feel like are experts on whatever you're doing. Now, what am I doing and who's the expert in it is a great question. And I really appreciate the press even thinking about that question um, and sending it to people um, but of course, there are, there are definitely other writers who I'm in conversation with. And so they send it to people anonymously, and those people write about it. 
and send that to me. And then I have to then respond to that. And there's multiple rounds of that. So it's a, it's a very interesting process because it gives me, it gives me the opportunity to be like, oh, this is, how it, this is how somebody else experiences it, or this is what it made them think about, or I totally disagree with what they thought I was saying, but isn't that interesting that that's where they ended up getting to from what, from what um, is actually a document of, of an experience that I actually never, I never knew that these would be published as books. I just knew that it was an experience that I needed to have. And so that crossover of it, this is deeply personal to publishing Mm-hmm. What's what's that been like? Um, like how personal is all of this mm-hmm. when it comes down to it? Well, I mean, I think it's not personal in the sense of like the, this is my life and this is what happened in my life or something like that. Um, though there is some writing that I do that is personal in that way. I think all all of our creation has that combination, right? So there, there's part of, you know, when you're creating something that you, you are having an experience, you know, and, and you have to kind of get deep down into that experience. Again, like release ego and understand that that experience is connected across all sorts of things, across death, across time and across space and just be present to it. And then the art that is created so there's that process, that's the creative process, and then there are artifacts from that, mm-hmm. right? And so then in this case, well, what happened? Well, I wrote, da- I wrote things down every morning, right? It would be amazing if you could see the whole day, if you could see me when I got in that art gallery and was like, what? You know, like, that would be a documentary film and that would be really expensive because it would be mm-hmm. a footage of like, you know, a year and <laughs> of my entire life, but... Um, so there's whatever there there is whatever is there from it, right? For somebody, it may be a painting, and or it may it may be a poem, or it may be a film, or it may be this podcast, and it's it's always both of those things, you know. But there is a way that it becomes filtered through form, right? So so the the words that that people have that they're going to have access to are not actually my year, but they're evidence of that. Their evidence of that of that journey and what happened, and um, and I really do feel that they also belong to other folks because our journeys inter- intersect. You know, my my journey is not an individual journey, and this particular book is thinking about what is life after the idea of the human. You know, what what does it mean to think about that in a way that centers these questions that. Black feminists have been asking for generations. You know, like what what does that what does that look like to do that work of imagination or of um, of being present in particular ways? And so I I don't feel like people will read this book and be like, well, now we know a lot more about Alexis Pauline Gums. In fact, they'll probably be like, what you know, like what where I mean, I'm in the blurb, like uh, Adrian, who knows me very well, Adrian Marie Brown. Uh, sister comrade, beloved friend of mine, was one of the people they asked to write a blurb on the back of the, the book. And she was like, is she at the bottom of the ocean? Like, where's she at? Where's she get this stuff from? You know, like, the, that's pretty much what her endorsement of the book is just a bunch of questions of like, how did this even happen? Like, I love it. And I'm like, what? At the same time. 
And that's, that may be other people's response to it. I don't feel like people will be like, well, now we know what Alexis thinks about this, 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 yeah. and this. Mm -hmm. I think they'll more be like, whoa, what would it be like? Mm -hmm. What will people looking back on this moment in history who may not even identify as human and who may not even be from this planet, like, what will they see? What will they think? You know, that I think, I hope that it will um, allow us to, to be in that conversation because that allows that allows us to be in this moment as future artifacts, you know, as ancestors to a future that we're not, that we think that we can't touch, but we are touching because we're making certain things possible and impossible in this particular moment. You know, that, that's what I'm excited about. And I think that people will recognize that they're doing that. You know, like in, in some way in their life, whether it's, you know, the kids that they care about, whether, again, it's the mothering work that they're doing, whether it's the art that they're creating, whether it's the organizing they're doing and the visionary work that that requires, they'll realize, oh, yeah, that is that is part of that impulse. We do know that there's going to be some echo of what we did in this moment and that it'll be perceptible way beyond our lifetimes. We do know that. Otherwise, most of the stuff people are doing in their lifetimes they would not do, you know, like it, if it was really just about this moment and it wasn't connected to all other moments, most things it was like, why, why record a podcast? Why sit down and write every day? Why make sure someone else stays alive who, you know, is younger than you or older than you? You know, like why, why do that? It's because we understand that there's at least a vibration that survives. Yeah, your, your line... Um, from Octavia Butler that prefaces, that prefaces your poem, Walls, got me wondering about a couple of things. Mm. Um, I'll come back to that in a minute, but can you talk about Walls as it relates to your life and work? Yeah, just the concept beyond of Walls. Beyond the poem, beyond the poem. Yeah. Beyond the poem, just the concept of Walls in general, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah that, there's... So much. I mean, I, I think that it, it is the same thing about individualism and separation and, and barriers. And so part of my work has been understanding when I've built walls, you know, and, you know, in the poem, banging your head against a wall, you know, like all, all, of, all of those, um, all of those things are metaphorical and real and physical in, in multiple ways. And I do think it's about protecting the ego. I do think it's about really fortifying this idea of individualism. Not to say that there's something wrong with boundaries that people create for well-being and you know all of that, but I think that um, for me, I have created walls and barriers in my life that reveal that I feel fundamentally unsafe. Unsafe, exactly, you know, like in, in existence. So what does it mean? I mean, I've recently had a breakthrough around the phone, you know, like that I would just not answer my phone, <laughs> you know, like to, just um, not spend a lot of time in conversations, even with people who like I love and I'm interested in them and they inspire me. I just would be like, I'm going to be working or I'm going to fill all my time with this and that. And that was a wall workaholism, even unpaid workaholism, you know, has, has been a wall in my life. Like if I can always say that I'm busy doing something important, then I have an excuse not to be involved in 
the messiness of relationships, which is actually a really important space of growth for me, you know, but if I think, you know, I'm a good writer, I'm a, I'm a good educator, um, but maybe I'm insecure. Like, am I, am I really great older sister? Am I really, you know, in, does my family get any benefit out of what I do? You know, like then I wall myself off in those ways. So when you're working so diligently, you're in that space of working diligently, you're well aware that things are working for you. Yeah, I think there are certain areas, and I, I think other people probably have this too, but for me, certain areas in my life where I think I'm good at good at things. And then there's certain areas in my life where I know I have so much work and growth to do. Now, it would make sense to go towards those areas where I have work and growth to do and that I feel less confident and I have more that I need to learn because I have more that I need to learn. But to protect the ego, I would silo myself, right? I would put walls and be like, well, let me just be in the place that I think is, is my strength. Only that place, all of the time. And not, you know, not reach out of that, not open myself up to the challenges and critiques. And, you know, even not to say that people are like calling me on the phone, like, Alexis, you need to change your life and do this. And you're not, you know, that's, that's not been my experience, but just, um, how being present to other people inherently it causes us to grow. Yeah, being self-aware, cognizant of those messy places that you intellectually understand you need to dive into. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing all of that, does, but, but still building that wall, mm-hmm. does that foster uh, in your life, has it ever fostered guilt or regret? Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, the, the reason that I even am a workaholic in recovery and know that I'm a workaholic is because that has been, that's been part of my relationship with my family of origin. And I saw with my siblings, for example, I, I take really seriously the fact that I'm an oldest sibling and that for a lot of their lives, my siblings look to me like, what is, what is a person? You know, like what do people do and what is life? And so what I showed them had a huge impact on them part of what I showed them was that work is the most important thing. And it, it's my priority above all else. And I don't, I don't feel that I really believed that my work was more important than my relationships with them, but I still taught them that because where is, where is she? She's working, what's she doing? Well, she's not sitting here hanging out with us, she's doing this, she's even after school, you know, like even from a young age, I was so project-based in my life and I didn't realize until many years later and it was a it was a great moment where my sister came to an event you know she came to an event that I was facilitating and there's this go around of like what brought you to this event and she was like oh well I came so I could spend some time with my sister right and not from a place of like because she has abandoned and neglected us and she would never you know not from a negative place at all but in that moment I could see like She's my sister. Why she got to come here to hang out with me? <laughs> you know, like that something isn't right, you know, like that, or at least it's not in alignment with my vision of who I want to be in the lives of my siblings. You know, that was what caused me to look and be like, well, what's my relationship to work about for real? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not like, it's not, it's true that I'm passionate about what I do. It's true that I do have a role that I feel like is important in, um, in intergenerational terms and in ancestral terms and, and in communal terms. But there were areas in my life where I was using work to distance myself from people and to 
and and from a place of fear and scarcity like that that was that was true and so i had to I did a whole bunch of stuff. I did like a whole month of no, where I said no to everything that people asked me to do work-wise and just like sat with that. Like, what did it even mean to do that? And why was I saying yes? Or was I saying yes from a true place? Or was I saying yes from like a scarcity place? Um, I really had to look at that and shift my practices because for me, my relationship to work was building walls. But the whole reason for my life's work is to actually free us from those barriers and to connect, right? So, I, so that's the contradiction, right? And so, um, so yeah, I have had, I mean, I, I've been releasing it, but I have had guilt and regret around what would it be like if I'd shown up differently? What would it be like for my siblings if, you know, now I, I do feel that they profoundly know that I'm there for them, but what would it be like if they always knew that? You know, that, that, that I missed out on what that would make possible and I don't have to feel guilty about that now. I just have to understand I'm committed to that being the case. I'm committed to for my nieces and nephews. I mean, my niece, when the phone, when the iPhone rings, she says my name. You know, she's like, oh, you know, must, must be Auntie Lexi calling. I'm so glad she feels that way, you know, mm. and, I, and I want for my community, for even new friends that I meet, for, you know, all the chosen family and, and, and people who I'm in relationship to, that's what I want. I want them to feel that I'm available to them, that I'm interested in them, that I'm not, you know, it, it, it's not enough to be like, well, she's not available, but it's because she's doing something really important. You know, I just, I want them to feel like, yeah, she does really important things all the time. And being in my life is very important to her, you know? So that's, um, yeah, that's where I'm at around walls. <laughs> it's a great, great and deep realization. Thank you for sharing that. During that month of no, mm -hmm. did you like what was this? What was that process like? Like I imagine, like day, you know, the first couple days was so. Had difficult. to have been hard. <laughs> it was <laughs> so hard. Did you find yourself like almost inventing busyness because, like, I need that validation, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I need to know that I'm busy. Oh. What was that? That's that's what makes it an addiction. Yeah. So it it um it was very hard. First of all. I, I realized I needed to do it in June. Mm. I couldn't even do it until November. So it was the month of yeah. November. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I had already committed to things from June yeah. to November, you know, so I had to like be like, okay. And, you know, also kind of save up, you know, like, cause it's, it's not like I'm just working cause, cause I want to, you know, like I also have to stay alive and, and there's a resource flow and unfortunately we still live in capitalism. So all of that, I had to like prepare to have that month. And then every day, every day I said yes to something and then had to go back and be like, actually, you know, even though I had an outgoing email that was like, no, you know, like all, all, I, I really tried to set it up so it could be even possible. And I, I learned that like, yes, it, it, it's not even, it's, it, I don't know if it was so much about the busyness, but it was like, oh, People ask me to do something and there are many times where I don't say yes because it's like flowing through purpose. It's I say yes because I'm afraid to say no. Why am I afraid to say no? Maybe I want to prove that I can do what they're asking me to do. Maybe I just want to fill up the time so I don't have to deal with whatever I'm present to emotionally, you know, all of those things. And so I had to, I had to go back and it's harder 
of course, to say yes to something and then be like, you know that thing I said yes to? <laughs> Actually, I was breaking a commitment to myself when I did that. And so I have to go back and say no. But I mean, I don't know. There might have been a day in there that I didn't do that. But I feel like it was like almost almost the whole time. And I finally got to the end of that month and I felt so much clarity, you know, like December 1st, I got these emails and like, there was one thing and I was like, oh no, like it's a clear no. And there was mm. something else. And I was like, oh, that's a true yes. Mm -hmm. You know, like a yeah. true yes is the gift of that, of that experiencing of being like, my yes is not a, not no, I'm afraid of no. Like my yes is an actual yes. So, um, some of your no's are yeses to yourself. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And in fact, what that time ended up being full of was poetry. And so that was also the answer to the question of what does happen when I say yes to myself? Oh, I want to write. I want to write all the time. I want to write every day. And that's the thing that really, um, that was the time where my, my daily writing practice really got birthed and was the foundation of it because it was like, well, what does happen when I have all of this space and I'm not using it in busyness and I'm not, I'm not just reacting to what other people are requesting of me? What is that full of? Oh, it's it's full of this creative process that I'm part of. When you talk about, you know, that, that sometimes I'm saying yes because I'm afraid of what the no mm -hmm. So you got to see mm -hmm. what happens if I do say no. Yeah. And what, yeah. I guess what, 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 what did happen? Yeah. I mean, nothing that I was afraid of happening happened. Yeah. Right. So it wasn't like people were like, first of all, it wasn't like people were like, we're never going to ask Alexis to do anything again. Cause they sure did the, ask the next <laughs> month, you know? Maybe the next day. <laughs> right. Maybe even the next day. So it, it, it wasn't, I didn't become irrelevant. I wasn't forgotten right. by my community. People were not angry at me, you know, like all of the things where it's like, I can't say no because th they'll be disappointed or they'll, yeah, they'll forget yeah. about me or I won't be able to be involved. None of those things came true. Mm. The only thing that came true was that I did all this writing that I, that I wanted to do. I spent those days feeling fully present to myself. And in fact, there was a lot of affirmation of other people being like, whoa, you know, because I had this outgoing email that was like, this is what I'm doing. It's a month of no. This is what it means to me. And other people being like, I need to do that, you know, or I'm thinking about my relationship to yes and no. And so I was afraid to say no because I thought that it would it would mean I wasn't who I think I am, which is um, an example in our community of what freedom looks like. That, that's what I'm committed to being. In fact, by taking that and saying, no, I was even more of an example of what that could look like in my community. And it benefited everyone who, even everyone who was emailing me to ask me to do something and getting an automatic rejection, <laughs> they were still benefited from the word no. So it was, it was profoundly liberating. Mm. Mm. Love it. Yeah. What are you tired of hearing? Ooh, what am I tired of hearing? I'm trying to find, like, what are the words that are consistent across this? I'm tired of hearing. Mm. I'm tired of hearing I can't. And I'm tired of hearing, it's so interesting given what I just shared. I'm, ti I'm tired of hearing... Um, just this overvaluation of busyness. I'm tired of that. 
you can, it's obvious why I'm tired of that because I see what that's cost me in my entire life. Um, but I really believe in the profound interconnected power of our people. And so it's important to me that there's a distinction between what we actually are choosing not to do, which is fine and I think really important, like I was saying with the month of no, and this, this thing around like, I don't know, there's a lot of language in our movement around capacity. And I think that's weird. I don't even understand how that happened. I don't know if it was drawn from like corporate supply chain trainings or something. I don't know, but capacity is this, is this huge word. And I definitely understand as a person who took an entire month of no, and in fact now continues to, to take um, intentional breaks and sabbaticals, that there is something about thinking about our, our um, over, overstretching, right? But something about the language of capacity is just too corporate There's nothing, for me. Yeah, it, we didn't create it, and here's why. You know what I'm saying? It's not beautiful. Posi positive <laughs> not or beautiful. negative terms that we create are always beautiful. It's so true. I mean, as a vessel for generations of revolutionary energy, can you measure my capacity? You know what I'm saying? Like, that, that, that don't go together. So I'm tired of hearing about that. <laughs> um, but then at the same time, I think what causes people to have to try to use that language and to try to, like, recuperate something by being like, I'm at capacity or do we have the capacity is this valoration of busyness. And, and I've started to correct people when they do it to me, you know, when they're like, oh, you know, and they, like, you're so busy and da, 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 and like, and they'll be like, how are you doing? I know you're busy. It's so, it, it's so part of our, part of our thing. And I understand that. Shit, I did it on the way when we walked in. <laughs> I mean, but sorry. <laughs> but the thing about it, you're honoring the value of my time and I, I understand it. You know, like I understand that it, it comes from that place, but I know that I have, I'm messing people up. You know, like I'm messing people up. People are looking at my Facebook and they're feeling like it's better to be busy than not to be busy. And um, it's not. It's not inherently better to be busy. I mean, of course, it's wonderful to have a life that's full of things that you're committed to and passionate about and that's full of wonderful experiences. But busyness in and of itself is something I'm not committed to, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I'm, I'm committed to my purpose. I'm committed to my people. But it doesn't have to look like busyness. And so I don't want, I don't want to teach another generation that. You know, I don't, I don't want to share that as um, as a way to try to prove that we're doing enough, because it's not even it's not even like that. It's not even about that. It is really profound to have the opportunity to be present, and it's going to look different ways at different times. You know, there's sometimes that being present is going to look like showing up in a lot of different places in a lot of different moments, and you're being present mm. and you could show up at a lot for a lot of different places, in a lot of different moments and totally not be present and actually be avoiding something that you need to be present to. And being present could look like sitting with one person for months, you know, and it could look like being by yourself for long stretches of the day. And it could, I mean, the thing is that in capitalism, we're compelled to be busy and it's a form of violence and it's killing us. So I don't want us to reproduce that in our in our movements as a valorization of busyness just in and of itself. You know, 
but I, I appreciate being honored for the things that I do. I appreciate that my community can see that the ways that I spend my time are all about how much I love them. I appreciate that for sure. Mm-hmm. But busyness in and of itself is not helpful. It's not helpful for me being busy is just not inherently helpful to my community and us thinking that busyness is better than, for example, peace or, you know, just wide swaths of time focusing on something or listening to someone. Um, it's a death sentence. Yeah. Can be. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that valuation of busyness is too often leveraged by capitalism to exploit us. Right? Exactly. So. And then we do it to each other. We, we're not trying to be violent to each other, but it, it is something that we've learned in a violent context. Mm-hmm. <sighs> 2018, so we, we made it past 2017, past 2016. <laughs> oh, um, gosh. Uh, obviously, more volcanoes to erupt, but I, you know, how do you balance cynicism and hope? Mm. You know, I feel like I have good teachers um, in that. And one of the teachers that comes to mind immediately, well, the two that come to mind immediately are James Baldwin and June Jordan. And both of them are writers who have impacted me so much among, among the Audre Lorde and among all the other writers that have impacted me. But James Baldwin, when I learned about him when I was in high school, I was like, oh, yes. Because he was so clear, like his critique was so clear. You know, he was, not to say that I agree with him about every single thing, but that he was just, clear at how the core of the American project was just so sick and twisted. He was clear about that, you know? And yet he had this profound love. He had this profound commitment to community. And I, I just witnessed that and read about him and was like, oh, those things are right next to each other. Like cynicism and hope are right, right next to each other. And it doesn't have to be that I'm avoiding the things that I'm cynical about or I'm pretending that I don't believe in us as, as a people in order for me to be right. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I think that there, there were times where I felt like, well, no, I have to be cynical all the time and not betray any inklings of hope or joy because if you're smart, you're cynical, you know? Or <laughs> like, let me just be hopeful and joyful and not have any critique of anything because if you have a critique, then we're doomed. You know, like those things are not, um, are not a binary in that way. In fact, the depth of what I can be present to that needs to change is only relevant because I do believe in us. You know, like that, that is, that's how I navigate cynicism and hope. You know, I, I think that, um, it's definitely at the forefront of the way I think about why black feminism is so important. I think black feminism is crucial. I think for the same reason, it's terrifying to people. For the same reasons, because it is so powerful. You know, I I was thinking about, um, I don't know if you guys are gonna still ask that question about Black Panther, but I saw Black Panther for the third time yesterday. Hey. And um, so I've just had my levels of thoughts and I was like, oh my gosh, Wakanda. You know, like, like we all wanna go to Wakanda and like Black Utopia type of thing. but. I don't think that Wakanda is a utopia or it didn't have a utopic message for me this time when I watched it, 
Because I was like, oh, I recognize myself in Wakanda as a person who has had times where I've used all my technology, all of my brilliance, all of my swag, all of my strength, all of it to hide how great I am. Ooh. And I was in there in the theater like, oh, snap, you know, like, you know, so there's all sorts of different reflections. Obviously, I see myself reflecting in that film in different ways. I'm like, oh, look, there's some powerful, badass women. That's me, you know, but, but yesterday I was thinking about it in that way. You know, I was thinking about, wow, that's something I, I have done. And that's something that we have done. Like, what does it mean to use every resource that you have to hide the fact that you are powerful? Oh my gosh, I've done that. And we do that, you know, over and over again. And I was like, what? That's, that's what living in Wakanda means. Like that's one version of what living in Wakanda means. It means using my greatness to hide my greatness. What? It's so, so deep. So that, that's like an insight that I'm just having in this moment. When I watched the movie yesterday, I was like, oh my uh -huh. gosh, this is the message for, from this movie for me on this day. That's, and why, I, that's why we have to, not as a comic book lover, not even as a film <laughs> lover, that's why we have to see it at least three times. <laughs> There's layers, you know, there, there's, there's layers. And when some, some of us are avoiding those layers, what's, what's up with that? Oh, absolutely. Some of our people are avoiding those layers. Oh yeah. I mean, and I think that, that that's, that's just the push and pull of like, sometimes we're just afraid to grow. Right. And that is what I was saying about like, why do I go towards the things that I don't need to learn more about as opposed to the things that I feel that where I feel most strongest. I think that when when I don't feel that I have to prove that I'm smart, when I don't feel that I'm trying to like hold on desperately to ideas that I've made up for myself about who I am, it's, it's just possible for me to, to grow and change. Now, when I'm just really trying to protect myself, that's just not the mode that I'm in. And sometimes I just do have to protect myself. You know, like, the, like there's full love and compassion and generosity for all of that. Sometimes I think we, we avoid layers and nuance because we really just feel like, we're just trying to protect what we have. And there's more than, there's more than that. You know, yeah. there, there's, a, there's a possibility beyond that, but I'm not always present to that possibility in, well, in, every, in been, every moment. Yeah, we've been conditioned to believe that there's not more than that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we just- This is what I got. That's it. But um, yeah, so I don't even know how, how exactly I put us there, but, um, but yeah, that, that, is, that is something that, is important. I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge that the same things that make us incredible, incredibly powerful, are in fact why we see such incredibly blatant, extravagant repression in this time that we're living through. You know, like if our greatness all of us as people who are actively creating a new world. If our greatness wasn't palpable, it wouldn't be threatening to, again, this is another, another layer of a desperate ego trying to protect itself, you know? And so even when I see and do not accept the unacceptable acts of legislative violence, 
acts of vigilante violence, acts of state violence that are um, happening and being nurtured and grown at this time, I understand that not only does it not contradict the greatness of the people that has been the investment of my entire life, in fact, it speaks to that. It affirms what I know about us and how incredible our potential and possibility is. There's that balance. That doesn't mean that it's okay, and that doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt, and that doesn't mean that I don't sit there and cry, you know, like that, it, it, it doesn't mean that I'm like, la la la, it affirms what I thought, you know, like it's not like that. But at the end of the day, all there is is that love and possibility that we're creating. It's literally all that there is. Even the resistance to it, I feel, is evidence of it and other forms of longing, you know, that people are experiencing that are being expressed in, in violent ways. Um, a lot of fear that's being expressed in violent ways. And I understand because I'm a person who, ha who has been afraid and I'm a person who has put up walls and, you know, like that all of that is part of my experience. I understand that, that that's part of what happens and that's part of what we do. And at the same time, I think we have, a, we have an evolutionary role. Mm. And it becomes so blatant. It's so clear. Um, I don't want that clarity to always have to look like extreme and disgusting violence. And I don't think it does have to look that way. And sometimes it does look that way. What is something you want listeners to know? Oh, I want you to know that you are loved. You are loved. I wish I could personally tell each person <laughs> and like have them know and write them a praise poem and dance for them and just really have them know that they're loved by me. But it's not really about them being loved by me. I think that understanding that we're loved is what makes everything else possible. And I don't know who it is that has impacted the people who are listening in a way that's allowed them to be who they are. I don't know what those experiences have been, possibly experiences of, of mothering in its um, infinite manifestations that have allowed the people listening to understand that somebody just wants them to exist for the sake of themselves. But it is true. I know that that, I know that, that experience exists, even if it doesn't seem like most of what's existed in their life. Mm -hmm. And I just want that truth to be, to be, to be there for them as they need it, to motivate them and to offer them the space that they need to grow in whatever ways are, are for them to grow. So yes, Weapons of Choice listeners, I want you to know that you are loved. If you need a reminder, I part of my life's purpose is to remind you of that, so. Mm. That's awesome. What do you, um, what art are you currently taking in it gives you energy and inspiration to keep going. Oh my gosh, so much. <laughs> I'm so grateful that there's just so many people creating amazing work. Oh gosh, what do I even talk about? I mean, so there's this book of poems that Samia Bashir wrote called Field Theories. Oh, it's so amazing. It's so incredible. It's really inspiring me. And it's actually giving me so much space to 
be present to my longings across black space and time. It's like, I don't know, it's like a, a black astrophysics of poetry in the cosmic realm. I'm not describing it as well as it's described elsewhere, but um, it's helping me think about the black space and time of longing, of, of grief for my dad who passed away. It's, it's giving me life and it's giving me space to grow in ways that I need to grow. And I'm so grateful for Samia Bashir in general, her entire body of work, but Field Theories is, is incredible. Um, I'm thinking about the visual artwork of Soraya Jean-Louis McElroy, who incidentally created the cover of M Archive, um, one of my very favorite artists, and she is a cultural alchemist, and she is based in New Orleans. And she, she just practices art as a fully holistic healing way of life. And I have been so healed by the work that she's doing. She um, facilitated a play shop that I attended that was about creating, creating a children's book for your inner child. Ah, it was so incredible. And I so needed it. Mine was about um, the little girl who sent her heart into the cloud for safekeeping and how she retrieved it. Oh my gosh, I just needed it. Um, so yeah, Soraya's work, so incredible. And then these in the Twin Cities, it's like, there's just nothing but incredible artists. I've been inspired by the work that Ananya Dance Theater is doing. I even got to go to one of their workshops about indigo and story sharing that they're doing right now. Um, Free Black Dirt here in the Twin Cities has given me life. Their Solstice Salon was like, it was everything. And it was all these powerful poets sharing their work and, and singers sharing their music. And um, Mama Mosaic Theater that Signe Haraday and um, Shay Cage and some other amazing sisters have created. They, they're so, they're so loving and sincere with what they do. And, um, and in fact, um, have are creating experiential ways for M Archive to be experienced, which is like was blowing my mind. Um, what you're doing here right now is what I'm doing here right now, as Winton Chair, sponsored by the University of Minnesota, um, which is because of the brilliant work of Zenzile Isoke, who is the chair of the Winton Committee, and who um, who took on the question of what would it look like to have a Black feminist residency here. Um, I'm collaborating with Black feminist artists, mostly theater artists, including Free Black Dirt, including Mama Mosaic, and including many other folks to create embodied experiences based on this, this work, this triptych of books, and then also the, um, the wider ancestral work. So Lori Carlos Oracle is, is part of that work and so grateful to Lori Carlos as an ancestor to this area who has transformed the creative possibilities, but also the energetic vibration. And also Prince as an ancestor to this area, you know, creatively, vibrationally, we are, we're collaborating to be inside of that. And I'm really honored because it, it really, what it really means is that my books are part of the technology that's being used to create some experiential spaces that allow us to all be together and by all, I really mean all, including the ancestrally present and including the people who will and possibilities who will be created. Yeah, well, yeah, thank you. 
And we will definitely leave a link in the show notes to get online and purchase M Archive and the rest of the books as well. So check those out in the show notes. Get on that. Order those books. Talk to me if you need a book. Mm-hmm. I can help you out. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. They got a special coupon. Y'all yeah. get in touch, touch with them or me. <laughs> yeah. How you feeling? Everybody feeling good? Anything that you want to get off your chest that we, you know, we didn't hit on that you're like, I've been waiting to talk about <laughs> No, these questions were so great. Um, is there anything else I really want to say? I mean, just thank you. Thank y'all for what you're doing. Thank you for thinking of me to be part of it and for just listening to what I've been saying, but also listening to yourselves and to your spirits and to your communities and saying like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to do this. We're going to create a vessel for this and we're going to prioritize what it means to sit and be with all of these different creators. I mean, it's beautiful. It's beautiful what you're doing. Um, excited for the travel that you're doing upcoming. I'm excited for your exponential expansion of 20 episodes this this year. I think that is, um, you know, I was, somebody posted like a quote from a book and I don't even know what book it was on Instagram this morning. So this is like such a terrible non-citation moment. Mm -hmm. But but it's Khadija Queen who posted it. So I can at least cite her. She's an incredible poet. Mm-hmm. Um, and it said that, you know, there are some times where being like having outsized ambition is just like, like too much or it's inconvenient or whatever. But in terms of art, mm-hmm. you're supposed to have outsized ambition. Like that's the whole thing that makes it relevant because it expands what's possible. And so you all's outsized ambition to double your episodes and to, you know, do what you're doing in such a deeply accountable way and, the nuanced listening and questions and research that you're doing about folks. I just, I see it all as such an act of love for this community and for many, many, many multitudes. So thank you. Thank you for doing your work. Wow. Thank you. Appreciate you. Yeah. Appreciate y'all. Thank you. Wow. Thank you, Alexis Pauline Gums. Thank you so much. Can't thank you enough. And shout out to Sean Webster, who, when I was having a conversation with him, like pleading for him to just tell me about um, just radical black feminist thinking women anywhere in this country. And the first name he gave me was Alexis. And I reached out to Alexis and uh, we exchanged a couple of emails and got really excited about doing this interview. So we're so glad it happened. Can't thank you enough, Alexis, and thank you, Sean Webster, for um, introducing us, essentially. Um, Yeah, keep following us, y'all. We're on the social media. We're on Facebook, at Weapon of Choice Podcast. Check us out there. Leave comments and uh, spread the word and share the links to the episodes that you love. And we're also on Instagram, at Weapon of Choice Podcast, and even on Twitter, at Weapon of Choice Pod. Keep following us, and uh, we love you. As always, we want to hear from you, our listeners. We want to know, what are you listening to that's 
revitalizing you, that's re-energizing you, what art is keeping you going, and what is your weapon of choice? You can send us your answers to those questions to weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. That's weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. As always, this has been a special menu production. Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to kick it out of the park. We're going to keep rolling, and we have got great things in store for you coming up. So stay tuned. Can't wait. Peace out, y'all.